Hi, this is Eric Peterson. And I'm Joe Aubrey, and we're the writers of Space Bastards. And you're listening to Spoiler Country. Hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Casey and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Citizens of the Republic of Spoilerverse, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm convened that is a loquacious Mr. Horsley, and today on the show, well, it's a couple of space bastards, Joe Aubrey and Eric Peterson, isn't it? It is. Is I feel like you have a word of the day calendar or an app or something because you keep using different adjectives to describe me each time, and I kind of like it, but it's like- Those ooh. are the words- that are in my head, buddy. So you have a word of the day in your head. Nice, nice. I don't need no word of the day calendar. <laughs> I read. Damn it. You educated. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is cool. Yeah. Um, Joe Aubrey and Eric Pearson came on to talk with Jeff about Space Bastards, which is drawn by by Derek Robinson, who we've also had on the show before. Talk to Melissa. Um, he's an artist behind uh, The Boys and Happy. And this is really cool. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun. What do you say we just get into it and then come back and talk afterwards? Listeners of Spoiler Country, today on the show, we have the fantastic Eric Peterson and Joe Aubrey. How's it going, both of you? Real good. Good, good. Uh, I, I did get to read Space Bastards. I must say that was a really, really high-octane, fun comic book. Oh, that's great. Thank you for checking it out. No worries. So for both of you guys, have you guys always been lovers of comic books, or is this something that you kind of fell into later in life? This is Eric. I, I, I have always become i've always been obsessed with comics for sure i i grew up just kind of I'm, i was born in 1983 so i'm kind of a child of like the late 80s and, and 90s and so i was along for like all the jim lee x-men stuff and all that and then somewhere around like 13 or 14 i started finding like 2000 ad and vertigo comics and all the books that i probably shouldn't have been reading at that age and <laughs> that kind of stuck with me through the rest of my life and I read them as I was when I was younger, and kind of hit the pause button during the during the nineties. The kind of that Spider-Man clone saga kind of kicked me off the kicked me out of it, you know. And I really resumed reading them again after I uh, started working with Eric on this, and he uh, kind of gave me some reading material, some things to get back up to speed on. You know, I find that really funny what both of you said because this clone saga is, is something I used to read in the nineties, and that. I hadn't. I've not bought a Spider-Man comic book since. <laughs> right. It's literally now what is it? Almost twenty years since I bought a Spider-Man comic book because of the Clone Saga. Yeah, that was a that was a stain that, that did not wash out easily. And I mean, I I I read a lot of Spider-Man before that. A lot of I mean, went through multiple you know different books, and that that pretty much killed it for for me. And I'm not saying it's all bad. I just I just didn't I just didn't get into it, and it was hard to get back into it. And the stuff that Eric reintroduced me to then was, you know, you know, a lot more independent stuff and the 2000 AD stuff and Vertigo and, you know, very different. I really haven't gone back to superheroes. Yeah, I, I will admit, um, I actually enjoyed the Clone Sega for quite some time. And then after a while, I think I just tired of it. But it, it also with Eric, you mentioned Jim Lee's X-Men. And I still remember the first time I saw X-Men number one in school. I had a, one, of, one of my friends brought it into class. I hadn't bought comic books in some years. And I looked at it, and I was just floored. It was such a tremendous comic book. The art was tremendous. It, it, that one, 
really got me re, uh, reignited a love for combo for quite some time with that comic. Yeah, it's one of those weird things. Like I, I was just at that age where everybody was trading like the X-Men collectible cards. Like those were really big when I was in elementary school. And so X-Men was just around. It was around everywhere. And then we had the cartoon and all that, even though ultimately I became a much larger Batman the Animated Series fan that oh, Bruce yeah. Tim DCAU thing is like, that changed my life. But, but yeah, like you couldn't really avoid it, I think if you were like my age and like reading and stuff that Jim Lee, Chris Claremont run. And then also too, even though it was before that, the John Byrne Superman or Man of Steel stuff, I remember like getting that from the library when I was really young as well. Like again, that late eighties, early nineties was kind of the thing that at that age, I think shepherded me into reading comics. You know, that's what I love about comic books is that it really does bring people together and it, and it creates common experiences for a lot of people of a certain age group. Cause like I said, I remember yeah. the, I remember Man of Steel, John Byrne, like I said, I remember the X-Men, I remember the Clone Saga. Uh, Vertical, I did not get to till I was actually old enough, apparently to understand it. Sandman, I think I, I, I bumped into, I think like two, the year 2000, I think it was. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, like I, for me around like 2000 or 99, I was hitting like Preacher and Transmetropolitan and stuff. And, and at that time I was going into college and, and actually around that time, Space Bastards, originally started as a, as a series of short films. I was in film school and the Davy Proton was a character I drew in my notebooks when I was in like junior high. And even though he, he bears no resemblance to the Derek Robertson, you know, the issue that's hitting stands now. But when I was in film school, that's, that's kind of how I met Joe was I was super into like Transmetropolitan and Preacher. And at the same time, the idea of Space Bastards and Davy Proton kept kind of reintroducing him, uh, reintroducing itself to me. And so uh, we would build these spaceship sets in my backyard and we would make these pretty amateur, pretty bad Space Bastards movies. And then, you know, eventually that that turned into the comic book. So how did Joe then get involved with uh, Space, Bast- Space Bastards? I, think- you know, I, I was trying to figure this out. You know, I, I think Eric was a uh, co-worker of the brother of a guy that I worked with. Yeah. So... And he was like, hey, we need some help with, you know, with the, I got this buddy that films, he makes these movies or something. And I kind of got in there and I was kind of the prop guy or a problem solver in terms of like, we needed a place to film something or we needed, they needed a guy like to put on a leotard and walk around or, you know, or, or just, you know, you know, just, just some guy to be in the background. And I kind of got involved in it that way. And it was a nice way to spend the weekend. I'd be at work all week. And then like on the weekend, I could you know, carry heavy stuff or like, you know, build stuff or, you know, run around and be in the kind of behind the scenes. They were, they were pretty outlandish movies too. So, I mean, that was kind of the thing that we always, I think, valued about Joe was that I definitely had a circle of friends that were always helping me out. And still to this day, I'm super thankful for that. But like, at the same time, Joe was the one who always stayed late. And Joe was the one who was always like calling me up at 2am days after the shoot going, you know, you know, wouldn't it be crazy if we did this, you know, and kind of always bringing new ideas to the stage and ultimately eventually helped craft the rules of the Intergalactic Postal Service, which made its way into the comic book as well. All of those kind of totems of, of Roy Sharpton's Intergalactic Postal Service translated completely into the comic book. That's really cool. And then how did Derek Robertson then get involved? I met Derek through a mutual friend at the time. I ran kind of an application company, a mobile application company kind of a media company and we did a lot of marketing and I geared a lot of the marketing towards comic book companies because that was my interest. And at the time I was kind of doing some independent comics and I realized I, I think I was going to find more success doing that rather than making like really, really low budget movies. And so at, at the same time that we were making those low budget movies, I was kind of interfacing with different artists and meeting different people and all that. And I met, I met Derek and, and him and I hit it off quite well. And then years later, Joe asked me, you know, if we could have any artist draw Space Bastards and play a role in, in kind of creating the visual look of that universe, who would it be? And, and I think back to Transmetropolitan, even though I'm a gigantic fan of everything Derek's done, uh, Happy the Boys, everything else, Transmetropolitan has always been kind of just those, one of those, you know, I'll buy every edition of that book that comes mm. out. And, and luckily Derek said yes, Derek jumped on board and then it was kind of like a dream come true. I, I couldn't believe it, you know, it was definitely the most important thing I've done in my career on, on, on the comic book side and my entire life, you know? So a couple of, so what, what happened to those short movies you were making? Are they, do they exist somewhere? Like, do they, are they able to be like shown as like a Kickstarter issue to special bonus thing people can look at? Is it buried look, somewhere? No, no, no human, no human would want to watch this. <laughs> <laughs> are, 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 are they that rough? 
They're they're pretty rough. I mean, we we yeah. we had like a, a like the best of the best reel that we made that has like the best things that we accomplished on film. Yeah. And and that has been assembled. And if you get the issue one from Humanoids, there's a there's a code. If you look for it, there's a code in the back. You can scan that. And you can watch that. If, if if you know, it's like the Star Wars holiday special. It's like you're not gonna. <laughs> You're not going to be better after you've seen it. We made better use of our time than these two guys did. That's what you'll be thinking. It might make you feel better about yourself yeah. for your career. <laughs> it, it was definitely like a cathartic thing in my 20s. I mean, it was a lot of fun to make those movies. But, you know, Joe and I, I think, always kind of hit that wall of like, you know, this just doesn't. I mean, we if you read the script, you understand what we're going for. But, like, ultimately, it looks like Ed Wood tried to make the script you know, versus, and that's not really what we're trying to do. I mean, we, on film, we could only, we could always like go, we could always steer campy or we could steal, steer like corny or something because we didn't have the money or the, I think the, the experience to really make it, to sell itself serious. Whereas our dream was always to make it, you know, like a, it was always for the idea to just kind of stand on its two feet and visually take it to places we, we really kind of wanted it to go. So, so, Illawarra is not Netflix ready. Does that could be a Space Bastards? Yeah. Uh, early Netflix series coming out that we can watch one day and be like, hey. not, not even, not even YouTube ready. I mean, not even TikTok ready. I mean, there's not even animated GIF ready really, but, but you, there is about five minutes. How long is that thing, Eric, that you can scan in? If you buy the comic, it's, it's in there. You can, you can bring up your phone and you can watch it. Some of it. It's clips a, up. Yeah. 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 It's a few minutes. It, it kind of just gives you kind of like a quick chronology of the Joe Eric relationship and, and where space bastards was kind of born out of. So for our listeners, please find it. If for nothing, no other reason, you can blackmail both writers if you show her out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. So as far as Derek Robinson goes, when you said you met him, was this pre-The Boys, pre-Transmopolitan? Was this early in his career? Or had he already no. developed by that point? No, he was developed by that point. I, I want to say the first time I ever met Derek was like 2011 or something. Uh, I met him twice. I had a short conversation with him at WonderCon one year. And then I had a longer, like an actual, like, you know, like we went out together uh, at, in San Diego uh, a few, like a year later or something. So yeah, but it would have been in like 2010 and 2011. It definitely would have been, I think, after uh, the boys. Well, Derek is definitely, he's a friend of the show. He's been on the show. I think he was on the show last month. I think he came on. That was a great interview. Oh yeah. Um, uh, I think it was Melissa. She, she does fantastic jobs with, with her interviews. Has he seen these special space bastards videos? <laughs> He's seen, he's seen still frames. Cause there's actually, there's props. Like there's a, there's a few thi- like moments in this series in year one where I thought it was cool to be like, you know, like Davy's spaceship. It'd be cool to actually have it be the same as the model that we built back when we were making those movies. John Fry built that model. And uh, John, if John's out there listening to this, there's thumbs up to him, but that, that that's in the book. Like there's props and stuff from the movies that we kind of, that, that Derek kind of elevated and, and put in the comic. And so in order to do that, like I would kind of have to like cringe and rewatch some of them and, and pull still frames from it. To set we, 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 we really tried to put our best foot forward to get Derek involved. You know, we, 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 we flew to California and we took some booze, you know, it, it was, it was, a, it was like, I mean, we, we really, Work. We, you know, slicked our hair back, went over there. We were very, we, and we sure as hell did not show him these videos. That would not be <laughs> to get him to agree to work with us. This is not something you show somebody who, who you want uh, to collaborate with. They would be like, no, I don't think that. No. Yeah. Well, one of the cool things that um, this comic book, Space Bastards, was funded through Kickstarter. Now, as someone who has dabbled myself with Kickstarter a little bit, it's not every campaign in Kickstarter hits its goal. Your campaign did. What is what was the key to making it a successful Kickstarter? And is there anything you can give the rest of us who has failed Kickstarters or a collection of failed Kickstarters on how to make our stand out the way the way your guys did? Joe, do you want to head that up? Yeah, I was the only advantage we had, you know, particularly with the with the. Second one, I mean, you know, you can't promise anything that, that you can't keep. You know, you got to be honest and you got to follow through for the for the pleasure, you know, your backers. What we had was we made sure we had the book done and printed before, you know, and we used it kind of as a pre-order mechanism so we could hold up the book, show it to people. We had a tangible 
product. And, you know, not ever, you can't always do that. You know, you can't always do that. We, that, that gave us a huge advantage, you know, and then, you know, having Derek involved gave us a huge advantage, but I think we had one, we had a Kickstarter before that, that was also successful, but, but you know, the thing we learned from both of them really, and, and what people appreciate is just honesty. You know, you've got to be honest about what you can produce and you, and you really have got to, it's better to under promise and over deliver with a Kickstarter from my experience. I mean, you know, what, what, how, how have things gone when you've done it? For me, I've had difficulty breaking about 50, 60%, I think of goal. My, my, I had two comic books where I tried. One was, I think a $10,000 goal. One was a $4,000 goal. And like I said, I think I hit maybe 50%. Yeah. It's, that's still a lot of money, but it's, yeah, it's tough though. God. It's one of those things. I've got friends in the UK that have tried to do like, like individual issues and they've always had to, I think they've done a really good job. Their book's called the 77 and they've always done a really good job. I think of setting the goals at like the absolute bare minimum that they needed just for the thing to exist. And at the same time, you know, I've had Kickstarters and some of my, my other non-Space Bastards independent comic work where I set a goal at like $2,000 and haven't broken it. And that was even after like we got a little bit of viral activity and stuff. It's hard. And, and the other thing too is that like, I don't know, we're, Joe and I are kind of in a weird spot with Kickstarter because we, we also aren't using it the way that I think most people use it. Like our products, I mean, pretty much the entirety of, of year one is, is there. And, and so it's like one of the things we had to deal with a lot on, on that volume one Kickstarter from over a year ago was like people constantly asking, like, even though we're holding up the book and we're flipping through the book in front of them, we would still have to put up with like comments asking, like, I don't know if they're going to hit the goal. I don't know if this thing's going to really exist. And, you know, we're trying to explain the whole time that we're like looking at it like, hey, look, we just want to do Kickstarter because it's like the best launch pad that's out there. And what you guys are actually funding is not the book that you're receiving that's already made. You're funding more stories down the line. You're helping us ascertain whether or not there's an audience out there for this book. So that way we can make more space faster stories down the road. Not I mean, recoup costs, recoup costs also. But yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah, it's kind of, a, it's been a, I don't know, we've, we've come a Kickstarter for, I think from a kind of a unique vantage point. And certainly I think Joe and myself have, yeah, we've learned a lot of lessons. I'll put it that way. So how did you promote the Kickstarter campaign? Did you use social media? Did you buy ad space somewhere? Well, I mean, in kind of late in the game, we were we knew we were going to Comic-Con. We were going to actually have the book there at Comic-Con. So we told people about the Kickstarter. We ran it simultaneously for our parents at Comic-Con. And Eric went to a couple of conventions earlier that year. Or was it later that year? I'm trying yeah, to it was a few months earlier, yeah. It was earlier than that year where, where we kind of got some buzz built up about the book. I tried to get it out to reviewers, you know, where, where people would read it. Because I think that's the other thing is people see something that's unknown, even if it's drawn by Derek and they think, is this any good? You know, it doesn't have Captain America in it. What, what's this? What's Should I even buy this? Yeah. Why am I paying this shipping? And I think if you can get regular people who, you know, who don't have any kind of attachment to it saying, you know, hey, it's, you know, it actually reads pretty well and it's it's more than you think it is and it's worth the value, you know, worth the, worth the money. You can get a couple of those reviews in there. And we did that a little bit too late last time, but that was, that was really helpful. And it, you know, made it, it just, it made it all go down a lot easier and, and people, people got that, but it, I still don't think that's where the bang for the buck came. I think that was just Facebook a- advertisement, right, Eric? Is that, yeah, we did, we did that first time around. We did a lot of Facebook ads and again, too, even that I would kind of quant, it's harder to quantify it because we definitely did get some donors or some pledges out of that, but I don't think that that's necessarily like the entire key to success. In my opinion, it, it, it tends to be kind of like sales in general. It's always like five different pistons firing at once. And the success kind of comes out of the sum of those parts. You know, I, I think it was the Facebook ads. I think it was Joe really tackling the reviews really hard. And then for us, I think during that campaign, one of the big, one of the best memories I have is that like during the last third of the campaign or during the home stretch, where we had already passed the goal, that was really when we started seeing another surge of, of interest as well. So I do think setting that goal appropriately is a big deal. How do you guys feel about when larger companies um, get involved with Kickstarter, such as when McFarland did it or some of these other larger companies? Do you think that's a, a good use of Kickstarter or no? Yeah, I do. I, I think I do. I, I, think, I think Kickstarter, I think there's a misnomer sometimes with Kickstarter that like it's only for the independent or that it's only for uh, a certain type of project. I can tell you with Space Bastards, we kind of play in a weird area there ourselves, simply because while we do have a publisher, 
the creation of the art and all that stuff involves a lot of our finance and it involves a lot of our personal investment as well. And, and so, you know, that's why we do it. But in terms of like these bigger names that sometimes do it as well, I, I still think, you know, a project is a project, right? Mm-hmm. If, if, if I had to like have my background checked, you know, <laughs> before I did every project or whatever, I mean, I, I still, I still do it, but like, you know, it, that's not really, that's not really how Kickstarter works. I mean, Kickstarter, I think is a, is a, is a great forum, I think for any project, you know? I don't know why, I don't know why those guys do that. You know, I don't know why they don't set up their own website. Do you think Carlin would have enough, you know, just buzz on his own, but yeah, but, but still, I, I mean, we're not, I'm not a Kickstarter purist. I mean, I, I understand that, that there's a, kind of Kickstarter itself has a different audience and a different user base and people, you know, will buy comics maybe through Kickstarter because they're Kickstarter comics. They're not, not because they're comics, you know, they, they, it's a different audience. And so I can see where those people might get offended. You know, it's, it's something small and, and, you know, it gets, it gets pressed when things get really heavily funded. But I think if people are out there looking for cool, you know, smaller projects or more obscure projects, they'll find it and it's out there. And I think if those guys want to kind of take the easy road and take a 10% cut on, you know, a 10% haircut on, on, you know, on their, on their bottom line, you know, at the end when, you know, when Kickstarter takes their money from them, I mean, they can do it that way. I mean, it's, I, I, I don't understand it, but, but they it must, it must be easy for them also. And from, from, from what it sounded like when Eric was talking, it sounds like you guys already had approval with Humanoids prior to Kickstarter. So you, you already had a publisher. No. So not on the, I, I, it's a good question because the whole thing's rather confusing, but we, we didn't have a publisher when we did that first Kickstarter. When we entered into a partnership with Humanoids, we specifically were looking for that, I think, because we definitely wanted, A, help. I mean, you know, I think after years and years of, of making this stuff, I think Joe and I were kind of at a point where we really wanted more partners. As long as those partners saw eye to eye with what we wanted and, and, and the, the project, you know, I mean, that's the big one. It's just making sure those partners, that we had the right partner. And, and Humanoids really stuck out immediately to us. And one of the interesting things that kind of come out of that as well was that like us telling them the background and saying, yeah, you know, we made this thing and this is all the content we've made and we want to make more, you know, but I think if we want to make more, we really need a strong partner in the publishing industry to really kind of get this out there in a time when the comic industry is, is a little bit disparate. You have so many different types of readers. It's not really the same way it was in the nineties or, or even the, you know, the, whatever you call it, the, the first decade of 2000, you know, and we really lucked out there with humanoids and, and they fully support these hardcovers that we're, that we're continuing to offer through, through uh, Kickstarter. This, this, the Kickstarter too, I mean, for anybody, I mean, I, I think it's worth running a campaign and even if, even if it doesn't, you, you know, you set a goal or whatever that, that doesn't, you don't quite get there. If you, if you can create something and you can present it out there, I mean, what, what the kick, that initial Kickstarter, that one in 2019, we wouldn't have the deal, I don't think, with humanoids if we had not done the Kickstarter. And I'm not even sure it mattered so much that we were successful, but I think it was, a, it was, a, it was proof that we could execute, that we could, that we could make a book, that we could, that, and that people, because of the reviews and because people bought it, that, you know, they knew that there was a kernel of a viable product there. And what we really needed you know, to really round this out was, was marketing assistance and some of the other stuff Eric was mentioning. And, and, and so, and, and it, you know, that was allowed us to, to make a much more dedicated and specific search for either a publisher or a marketing arm or someone who could help us with what we needed. And we could show them the product and we could show them, you know, early response, you know, just like a, just like a test screening or something, you know, it, it really, we kind of thought of it that way. Yeah. And, and that opened doors for us. I think we got, we got it in the hands of a lot of creators because of that. And, and really, Kickstarter was responsible or, or allowed us to do that. For um, casual comic book fans may not be aware that Humanize is a publisher that's been around for about 40 years, if memory serves. I mean, they've been around for a long time. I mean, I, are, I'm trying to remember, are they a British publishing company, if memory serves? French. French, French company. Okay. So, Originally, yeah. So why Humanoids then as your publisher? Like what brought you to them as opposed to somebody else? Well, so now they have, I mean, they do really have a, a big American presence right now. The other thing, too, is that the, the type of books that they do and the quality of the books they do is, is I think, really kind of unique. Yeah, it's unique. And I think it's, 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 up, it's up Joe and Mai's alley, I think. Like, it, <laughs> it's stuff that we see eye to eye with, you know. And, and, and it looked to us, it looked to us like on point. Like, it really did look to us like Space Bastards would fit in along the line up there. We had a hard time finding, you know, we, we, we sent out, a, we cast a wide net and we got some interest from other publishers. 
But you know, vertigo dissolved, and, and you know, we, we needed we needed mature readers. You know, a company that was comfortable with a mature readers book and that would get behind it. You know, and in the last couple of years, I think it, you know the young adult books and some of the other stuff has been stressed more, and, uh, and editorial teams have changed, and you know the whole labels have dissolved, and and so they've held pretty steadfast. And their their specialty is just transgressive material. You know, and they've got a weird, you know, just paddock of of books. You know, uh, under their under their control, and it's it's a it's a strange it's a strange assortment, and they they're just kind of looking for anything that kind of pushes the boundaries and, and it, it, it's, it's like a perfect fit. And the, and the guys that are working there, yeah, it's, you know, they, they got it immediately and, and it just, we, we clicked and it was just, it was just the right fit. It, we had a kickoff meeting with Mark Wade, the publisher and, and the rest of the team, everybody else that was involved. And, and I didn't know what to expect. And, and it was like, yeah, I don't know. It was just like the best, like, you know, blind date ever. I mean, not really blind, <laughs> but I mean, I mean, cause we knew what we were kind of entering into, but it was just like that, that first meeting between all of us, I felt like, Hey, space bastards is home. You know? I mean, like we, we, we really did see eye to eye with everybody. And, and, and it, as, I think, you know, they could feel that way about a lot of books, but kind of what I thought was really peculiar and interesting was the fact that, you know, we didn't make space bastards once we were at humanoids. I mean, a lot of that content, you know, all previously existed. So that to me was the, the match made in heaven aspect of it, or like the weird kismet part of it was like, oh, wow. Like we actually like were operating kind of in, uh, as an island to ourselves here, but actually we, we made something that's pretty on point with everything else they're doing, you know, and, and they like it. So, well, well I'll say I, I did read the first issue and I thought it was fantastic. And oh, thanks. No, no problem. I really enjoyed it. it. It felt very Garth Ennis-like a little bit in, in its style a little bit. Yeah. Wow. You're both credited on the comic book as right as writers. So how does this partnership work? I mean, what's, how do you guys, what's the division of labor like? How do you guys, I mean, do you, one write and one's, you know, takes a second peek out of it. How does it work? We, we, we take off our pants and we go into a room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's, it, it is, a, it, Joe, it's, Joe's got a meta answer there in a way, simply because, I mean, it is a lot of laughing between myself and Joe. I mean, and it is when we're working, we're, I think Joe and I are pretty good at like isolating ourselves from the imaginary audience out there. And, and we kind of make ourselves the, our, our audience. Like I try to make Joe laugh or Joe tries to make me laugh. Or if we're outlining a story or something, we'll, we'll try really hard to, uh, we're, we're our own worst critics in the fact that I, I think I, we will like craft an entire issue. And then literally one of us will come up with like some left turn or something that changes the, you know, two thirds of the issue. And based on the, re- you just present that because you know, the reaction you're going to get from the other guy. And, and then, you know, in that, in, in that scenario, it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, how can we not rewrite this whole thing? I mean, it, it's so much better now. And typically for us, we've been pretty fortunate in the fact that whether it's because of us or whether it's just, I don't know, our obsessive compulsive issues or whatever, pretty much every issue of Space Masters has been that. There's been like something in there where we've just been like, oh yeah, this here is kind of the, the icing on the cake or this is the, this is the meat of the matter. You know, this is the thing that kind of really makes that issue. We will we'll write it. You know, we write an outline, a very detailed outline, and then get, we get one of one or the other of us will work on the first draft of the script. The script, and we just we just hand it back and forth until you know there's just we're just getting down to punctuation. You know, and, yeah. and when we get it down to just a really good form, and then we think about what artists we want to to draw, and we approach these guys, and then we kind of figure out, okay, do we need to tailor the story to to match this artist's style and to really allow them to have fun and really go nuts with it. And so then it kind of goes through a revision there. And, uh, you know, it, it's gone bizarrely uh, smooth for the last, whatever, eight years or however long, seven years. <laughs> a long time. Yeah, it's been strangely, uh, you know, effective. I will say that real quick is that, like, I think that is something that I really appreciate about our, our, our methodology. And, and I don't know, I really, I, I don't talk to enough writers out there to know whether or not we're unique in this or not. I don't think we are, but Joe and I are like, zealots when it comes to outlining like a 28 page comic for us might be like a 12 page outline and typically that outline will involve like back and forth back and forth back and forth just like joe said i think that makes it pretty unique the fact that we we're kind of thinking the spine of the story has to be that intricate and like we kind of really want to know everything about it the other thing too is that like once we choose an artist to go with that story and sometimes in that process we'll completely revise the story we'll say you know hey simon bisley's working on this one so you know this doesn't this almost seems like a Simon Bisley story, but we're not quite there yet. Let's, let's dig deep again. But after we get past that point, the other thing is, is that like Joe and I will kind of like consume like a, 
like a solitary diet of whatever that artist's work is. So again, to use the Simon Bisley example, right? It would be like, I'll go read a bunch of Lobo and I'll read Slain and, and Judge Dredd and stuff. So that hopefully when we're writing the script for that particular artist, we're very specifically thinking in terms of their visual eye and kind of historically where they've, how they've told their sequential stories or their sequential art. And, and that's kind of, I think, like our second value. I think that's the other thing that we do that, that kind of helps us quite a bit. So as you mentioned, so Simon Beasley is going to join the project. Clint Langley is going to be joining the project. How does that work? Is Derek Robinson off after the first issue? Are they doing story arcs? Well, no, Derek's, Derek's definitely around. Derek's, I think we've got him for a number of issues coming up. I don't want to spoil, so I don't want to say how many, but get used to Derek. Derek's, Derek's around for a while and he's awesome. More, more, than, he's, more than 200 pages. Yes. And then at the same time, too, we have kind of something unique happening with some of the other characters in the series. And again, I don't want to spoil too much here, but yeah, that's, that's, you have a lot of stories by other artists there, including Clint Langley, Simon Bisley, Colin McNeil as well, uh, Boo Cook. Yeah, a lot of great stuff out there. You know, it's kind of funny. You talked about Simon Beasley, who is well known for Lobo. And I was reading the, as I was reading the first issue, Manny Corns kind of reminds me a lot of him. Is that an accident? Was that intentional connected feeling because of Simon, with Simon Beasley coming on board? Oh, Joe, do you want to take that one? Well, yeah, I mean, Manny, Manny came way before, I mean, like Manny was, we had, we had his character, you know, long, long before we thought we could even get uh, Simon Bisley on board. And so, you know, that, that initial incarnation of him, you see is, 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 is Derek, you know, is Derek and you know, kind of just the three of us and, you know, an earlier artist too, that we'd kind of worked with, you know, and anytime you got a guy who, you know, you know, just just doesn't take any shit and travels through space and you know and squashes his, his competition. You know, you're going to think about Lobo. There's just no, there's no, you know, getting around that. I think there's there's some. He's you know he's not quite the the, the character isn't the same. I mean, it might evoke that, and I think that helps us. But even when we've had Bisley, we've, we've talked with Bisley about a manicorn. The way he, even the way Bisley uh, has worked with him, it seems very different to, than Lobo to me. I don't know, Eric. Can we, can we, yeah, I agree. I think there's some. There's some stuff. I, I, I mean, stick around the series long enough and you'll see some major differences. I, I certainly totally get it. Like I, I, I hear about Lobo a lot and, and I'm a gigantic Bisley fan. So of course I know Lobo and, and, I'm, and I'm a big Keith Giffen fan as well. So, but I don't think, I don't know if that was really intentional, at least on our part for the writing aspect. You'd have to ask Derek too. I'm always curious whether or not Derek, how he feels about kind of his design of Manicorn and everything. Cause I, I really love it. I love what he did with it. But I also know too that like, like that's another thing I really value about working with Derek because I think I think when we talk about work or we talk about creating it, Derek, I find myself and Derek and Joe kind of sharing a lot of similarities in terms of language. So it wouldn't surprise me if obviously Derek shares a lot of the same influences that we do as well. You know, but the thing, one thing I really like about about Manny Corns is that he definitely is a very badass character. He, but he has a very specific seeming moral code. Is he more in the series going to play a part of the villain or is he more of a, of a likable antihero? I think neither. <laughs> I'm sorry to, to be so coy about it, but you know, in our series, it ultimately is an ensemble cast. And, and I think a lot of the, we could say this about a lot of the different space bastards cast members, which is, yeah, maybe there's an antihero kind of thing there, but I think similar maybe to like, a Tarantino film or, or Coen brothers or, or some of the other stuff that I, I, I think Joe and I have kind of grown up watching. Like I think to call him an anti-hero or a hero, either way would kind of be too strong. Maybe I think structurally in, in some of the individual issues, you know, he is the antagonist and then, and, and, and in, you know, maybe in some of the other stories, he, he will serve as the, as, as, you know, the only guy you can really root for. And I think some people will, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I fall a little bit on the side, side of an antihero. I think he will. I think he will ultimately. He, he you know, he's not going to change too much. The world, you know, either has to bend to him, or you know, he's just he's just not going to change without something incredible happening. I, I guess I, without spoiling everything. Or do you, I think, think, it, you think it's more yeah. ambiguous than that, Eric? You think it's more of just either way? I, I think I think I think Manicorn, like a lot of our characters, kind of serves this structural purpose of being a, a character first first and foremost. And, and certainly a lot of ours play in this like weird kind of gray area. I think structurally in terms of like antagonist, protagonist, foil, or, or what exactly do they mean to the plot and whatnot. The cool thing about Space Bastards is that there's so much ambiguity with that and, and freedom there with that as well, is that right. the characters really do kind of, I think in a lot of cases, take on a life of their own. And then Joe and I are kind of along for the ride as it were. So 
For listeners who may not be familiar with Space Bastards yet, the story kind of centers around a futuristic inter- intergalactic post office. But the spin is that the delivery people are actually in competition to accomplish the delivery, in, in, including potentially killing their coworkers. And with each delivery, each time the delivery package or parcel changes hands, the feed to the customer increases. Is that Am I, am I um, summarizing correctly? Correct. Now, the company then benefits by the killing of their employees. Correct. All right. So, and, and I was thinking while reading it that it felt like an allegory for how corporations view employees, you know, less of um, actual employees, but more of a almost like cogs in whatever machine they're trying to create to increase their revenue. I was wondering, was that an intentional allegory you were making with this com- comic book, or is that just. A, a, a happy connection. Yeah, that's that's what we were. I mean, that's w- what it developed into for sure. And then, you know, you as you go along in the series, you see some other ways that the company profits off of this the, the the life cycle of a postal worker. You know, it's not they don't all die. You know, some are incapacitated or you know gravely wounded. And uh, you know, the the postal service has been kind of refitted and, and redesigned to to profit off of every you know, every, every condition that can happen to these guys. And they, and they're just, yeah, they're just, they're, they really are more like the boxes that the packages are, are, are riding around in, you know, even though there is a physical box, they're, they're more like just the, the means of getting the packages from one place to the other. They're, you know, they're, they're completely, you know, dehumanized really. It's pretty and, cool. You bring, you bring up like a really good point there, Jeff, in terms of like, just the, the idea of like, if Davey at the, when he's an accountant, maybe thinks that, you know, he works a lot and, you know, maybe the rewards aren't quite there. He now has this other, you know, this other climate where the rewards are certainly there, but you're going to work way harder for it. And, there, and there's just a lot less BS in the way, you know, it's, it's a lot more cut and dry. It's, it is, I, I think the way you, you phrased it actually is like, is, is really smart, which is kind of, it's this like, like a high octane version of, or, or, or parody, I think of, of a lot of different jobs out there, you know? Yeah, because when I was reading it, the part that popped into my mind is the idea of, or at least the phrase, that a company will work you to death. And I feel like most people who work, especially for a corporation of any kind, feels like you're being worked to death. And your story in Space Passes with the Galactic um, Post Office is just doing it literally. You know, it's just, that's you know, that's, that they're to be more open with the fact that they're doing that with you, as opposed to when you work your regular job in our, in our real lives, that they're just slowly doing it to you. <laughs> yeah. The, the hook is more freedom. I mean, that's, that's the big difference is that, you know, they, they hook you with that is that you are your own boss here at the Intergalactic Pulse Service for sure. And the main character is David Proton of the first issue. What makes him a great audience surrogate for you guys? I could certainly relate to him. My first job out of college, I mean, I worked like retail jobs and stuff, but my first real big job was being a TV producer for an internationally syndicated show. And that's actually where I met the person who introduced me to Joe, um, Joe Aubrey here. And, and, but when I was there, I was sleeping underneath my desk two nights a week, slowly doing worse and worse at college, just because it's like, it's a big daddy job. I mean, I was working like 60 hours a week trying to get this thing out. And I was like, because of my age, I, I felt like I was pretty underpaid, you know, and I was always kind of like worried about like, Dude, if I get if I get let go like next week for some reason, I'm really screwed. I'm never making enough money to you know carve a life for myself at this age. I, I'm I'm totally doing this for the experience and, and living paycheck to paycheck. And, and so for and then like there were other jobs in my 20s as well where I was like and certainly I've been laid off before as well. So I think Davy Davy for me. I mean even going way back to the films, Davy was always a guy who was in between a rock and a hard place in terms of his employment. And I think that's kind of what eventually ended up kind of becoming the, the groundwork for, for the IPS for, for what we're doing in the comic book with space bastards. But, but yeah, I, I think he works as like a, like a lens for people to enter this world and everything simply because of that is like, I, yeah, he's the most normal of the characters or <laughs> relatable, I think uh, for myself, just out of like true life experiences, you know, but that's for myself, Joe, what do you think? I mean, yeah, he's, he's an everyman. He's, you know, he's got a very conventional job and, you know, he's horrified by the things going on around him. And I think he reacts the way people might initially react. And, and you know, you kind of, he's, he's, that's what we needed. We needed a guy, a character like that, that you could, I mean, there's other characters you could join the story with, you know, for your first read, but his requires the least amount of, you know, foreknowledge. You can just come right into it and, and, and see all the things he's experiencing. And he's, you know, he's, in, he's, in, he's afraid for his life. 
And I probably is the closest to what an actual audience member, you know, an actual reader would um, experience if they were placed in the same situation. I, the one other thing I really like about the comic book is the inclusion of the details. For instance, you have the, I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong, the Hikope tri, Tribes Casino. And this is, that's the location of the Indian Postal Service. Is that the casino, the symbol for the risk being taken by those, or the gamble being taken by those involved? Is, is, was that like, was that intentional? Like, hey, you know, this is like, like risking everything at, a, you know, at a, putting all hands, you know, all hands in on a bed or something? There's some theme work there. I don't know if we should say for about a month. Okay. <laughs> Maybe longer. <laughs> There's theme work there for sure. But I think a lot of other story or a lot of other aspects of the universe kind of play a role in that as well. But you're, you're certainly catch. what? That was a good catch though. Nobody's really brought yeah. that up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like that's what, that's exactly it. It's like, I think you, you really, yeah, you're close. You're close. You're getting there. Yeah. Well, it's gonna have to take a second read. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure it out. I'm gonna pull it apart and figure it out. (laughs) The other cool inclusion that you did was only, I think, one panel, but you mentioned Roy's rare reptile world and showed some reptiles. Are we gonna get more images from this adventure park, or is that something you just threw in because it was kind of clever? You know, we, we, we talked about this a, a, a many years ago when Eric and I were hashing that out. We were like, you know, any of these rich eccentrics, everybody from what, like Hearst and, you know, Michael Jackson to, you know, these guys always seem to have these exotic zoos. They always seem to have giraffes and zebras and stuff like that on the property. They had to do. Yeah. It just seems like something you do when you make a certain amount of money, you know, and you're, and you're, and you're off kilter, you know? So initially, you know, we, we put it in there because of that. It just seemed like, that was the that was the best um, way to you know kind of round out Roy's character and get a good glimpse as to how he lives, but it, but yeah I mean there's we, we we there's some callbacks to that later on in the series I'll say it that way. So something like get eaten by a reptile, uh, a mutant reptile. <laughs> I would love to see it. <laughs> okay, so and and the one of the major questions that I had okay with with, with Mandy Corns obviously he's a badass obviously he has killed a lot of people. What in the world are they thinking, making him a mentor? <laughs> I'm just curious about. I think a lot of that's pretty, I think in the case of Manny taking on Davey, I think that's pretty, the, the, the mentor thing is something that every postal worker has to go through on their first foray out, right? They have to do a ride along. And so I think a lot of that is pretty, pretty automated. And you know, woe be to the person who just happens to be saddled up with Manny. <laughs> Yeah, it's just part of the lottery system. You know, you you know, Davey could have followed another uh, postal worker. That you know, it's just you you get you get brought in and you get paired up with somebody and you got to survive for twenty four hours. Or you got to survive the first delivery. Yeah, yeah. And, and and like I said, I, I thought it was beautifully handled the growth of David Proton throughout the issue without giving anyway any spoilers. There's a moment that somewhere something occurs to David uh, to David during uh, one of the deliveries where he, I'm not gonna go into. So we're going to ruin anything, but it's his, how he deals with that incident. That seems to be the turning point in his growth as a delivery person. Was that when that incident occurs, is it that he realizes the danger? Is it that he finally kind of realizes the, the way of the universe? I mean, what was your thought process around that moment? If you probably can think about the one I'm thinking about. Yeah. So I think, I think for me, at least, and I'd be curious to hear Joe's answer as well. For me, it was definitely no way out. It was, I think, I think when you're an adult, I think it takes a certain amount of trauma and, and desperation to truly exhibit character change and, and really kind of leap into something uncomfortable. And cer- certainly, I think throughout that issue, we kind of play with that quite a bit. I think the, the, I think the first half of the issue, I don't think this isn't a spoiler. I think this is pretty clear to everybody who gets about 16 pages in. I, I think Davey is... Davey's going to have to learn very, very quickly about kind of the, the, the laws of the jungle in terms of the laws of the postal service and, and, and all of that. And, and it's sink or swim and not everybody can swim, you know, that's for sure. Joe, what do you think? I'm afraid I'm going to give away anything if I can go further with it, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> he, you know, that's uh, I don't know. There's just, there's just points where you're, where you're, you know, tested and uh, you have to figure out what, what skills do you have that you can bring to a situation to, you know, what, what, what have you learned in your life up to a certain point that, that'll get you through a situation? You know, do you, you rely on your, you know, on your, on your wits? Do you rely on your brawn? Do you, do you cheat? Do you steal? Do you give up, you know, or do you cower? You know, that's, you know, we wanted him to have that 
that fork in the road and, uh, you know, and to see what happens. I will do literally, if there's something that I'm supposed to stop in terms of my behavior or change about my behavior, I will do anything to avoid that. I'm just speaking myself. It's like, <laughs> I will come up with any excuse to be like, well, no, I had to go do that thing. Cause you know, and then look, I had to do it or whatever. I mean, it, it takes getting rid of all that stuff and, and yeah. 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 So Another character that gets introduced is going to be Powers of Power Industry. What role is he going to play in upcoming oh, issues? Or that's spoiling too much as well. <laughs> You're asking well, all the hard questions, man. Yeah, it's hard questions, man. I mean, it's just so nice to talk about the book, though, finally. Uh, it is great. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. I <laughs> oh, appreciate it. We've waited years for this. This is that, like, I, you know, Wayne Powers and Powers Industries. They got a long history. You know, there's yeah. a lot, they go way back, you know, with, with Roy Sharpton, who's the postmaster general. And so that's, that's a, that's a rivalry or a, uh, you know, a relationship that has uh, already been going on for a while when the, by the time issue one hits and that, that continues on in the remainder of the series, in the series. The concept also kind of brought another question to my mind. So obviously when, as we discussed, the more packages, times it exchanges hands, the more expensive the fee is, correct? So. Right. At some point, though, the customer is probably passing the point of potentially affordability. Is, would that be a possibility? And is there yeah. any? And what is the impact of that happening, where the the customer can no longer or chooses no longer to pay for the delivery after it exchanges hands? Who knows how many times? Joe, want to take it first? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, you've probably bought stuff on Amazon. You want to get it there immediately, and you've paid three times or sh- on eBay. Maybe you pay three times the shipping just to get it to your to your house. You know, I, I guess what I envision in, in in this universe is that there's some sort of automatic payment plan that goes in there, and to have sent a, you know a widget to your aunt or to a Christmas, maybe a fruitcake to your to your to your to your mother or something you know, around Christmas time, you may end up spending hundreds of thousands of credits and it just it just gets tacked on and small amounts of it get deducted like any debt and uh, you, you know you're in trouble. And I would not be surprised if there's somebody out there or many people out there who have had to file bankruptcy or have gone through major financial upheaval because they are surprised at the bill. I don't think it's that frequent in the universe, but I, it would not surprise me if that was like a real life thing where, you know, so many people died, unfortunately, that and the package changed hands so many times that, yeah. Like this is like a college tuition bill. I'm going to be paying this for the rest, you know, for the next 20 years. The natural, <laughs> the natural selection, uh, you know, on these postal workers is 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 pretty potent. You know, I mean, if you think about it, you know, the you know, the, the ones who are going to be really successful, you know, hang around. You know, the average lifespan of one of these guys is probably just a few hours to a few days, but eventually it's going to get down to where a successful postal worker gets hold of it, or one that maybe is isolated and. You know the the fees are going to going to slow down, but but yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be expensive and it's gonna be passed on to the consumer. It's yeah, be a problem. Sure. <laughs> I was I was reading, I was thinking to myself, damn, those are some very unlucky uh, customers. Sometimes <laughs> it's a it's a it's a weird universe, and I think in future issues we'll definitely you know you'll get a chance to kind of read more about it and stuff. But it's definitely a universe where the features are are catching up with function, as it were, or vice versa. I'm trying to think of the right way to say that, like stuff needs to get done, right? And the impact that it has on people's livelihoods or, or, or their lives, you know, sometimes doesn't necessarily equal that, you know? So, so where will future issues take the reader? I think the unexpected places is the best answer I can give. I think we do a good job in terms of like saddling the reader up for a story that 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 they expect to see and and, and, and expect to feel resolution with and expect, but I would I would say for sure, expect some twists and turns and expect expect the unexpected there a little bit and, and then also too it is an ensemble cast so i mean there's a lot more really interesting i think and and, and funny characters and people from all sorts of walks of uh, all, all walks of life that readers will get to experience here very soon so how about you joe i mean lots and lots of mailmen are going to die what else can I say about what's going to happen? We, we kind of make a promise on the first page of the issue one. You know, so the very first page, you, you, you're going to see something happen there, and and we're gonna we're gonna catch up to that, and and it's you know that that's going to make sense, and then we're going to go into some of the, the to the more uncharted neighborhoods, you know, little 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 off ramps into you know smaller parts of the universe with some of these other artists, and you're going to learn a lot more about individual characters who actually have a lot of relevance to the overall story. And hopefully it all fits together well and, and, you know, and people enjoy it, but it's, you know, it's funny and it'll be violent and it'll be, it's going to be great art all the way through. 
I can promise you one thing is that no, no issue comes out that Joe and I ourselves don't kind of swear by or love ourselves. I mean, we purposefully try to make each other laugh with every issue or uh, get kind of like a, a guided reaction out of each other before it ever, you know, before it ever gets finished. So how many issues is it expected to run and where can our listeners find it, find the issues? Yeah. So there's two different, there's two different ways. I mean, I would always encourage readers who, who, who like buying variant covers and they like reading, you know, singular issue, you know, monthly periodicals to go to their local comic shop, make sure that Space Bastards is ordered. In terms of how long it will run, you know, that's a surprise. I can tell you that there's, <laughs> there's a lot of Space Bastards already completed. I can promise you that. And so I would encourage readers to go out there and, and pick that up from their local retailers every month via Humanoids, our publisher Humanoids. At the same time, Humanoids allows us to do these kind of director's cut hardcovers that come out on Kickstarter. In fact, January 18th, volume two comes out on Kickstarter. And, and we also have in, in certain tiers there as well. We have volume one bundled with it as well. And the thing that's kind of unique about these hardcovers is that they're a super limited edition. Like they don't get sold in stores. There's no way to get them other than through the creators. And, and then what we do, like we, we talked about earlier, is that we use, we use the, the money that's raised from this to really fund future, future Space Bastards stories as well. And those hardcovers actually tell the stories in a really unique way. It's kind of different than reading it through the monthly periodical way. In fact, I've always wanted, like, this is goal number one, is getting on a podcast here and being asked so many wonderful questions by somebody that's read issue one. That's amazing. I've I've waited forever for that. (laughs) Goal number number two for me as well is trying to get somebody who reads the hardcover and somebody who reads the monthly issues to sit in a room together and then hear what questions they have and, like, (laughs) how they hash that out because that to me would blow my mind because they're seeing different aspects of the story and they're seeing things kind of portrayed in different ways. So, so there's that is that I think diehard super fans of space Bastards might want to check out the hardcovers, but certainly on a really broad level, I would encourage everybody to go every month and, and pick up space Bastards, including space Bastards issue one, which hits stores January 13th, uh, Wednesday. Oh, fantastic. Like I said, I, I really thought the first issue was fantastic. It's a lot of fun. Very high, very, a very high octane, a lot of great action, um, great visuals, entertaining characters. And I do encourage our listeners to definitely check out Space Bastards. It will be def- it'll be worth the read. And I want to thank both of you for stopping by the show. You guys are, are fantastic, and I enjoyed talking with you. Likewise, man. This was a real treat. Thank you so much. We are back. So what'd you think? Uh, well, it's a great team. So I, I haven't seen this yet, you know, uh, but listening to them and going over it, I want to check it out because it sounds awesome. In the future, unemployment and job dissatisfaction is sky high. You have nothing left to lose. You join the Intergalactic Postal Service. The postal fees are steep. And they only go, and they, and they go only to whoever ultimately fulfills the delivery, making every run a comically violent free for all between the most ruthless mercenaries in the cosmos. There you go. That's it's about the postal service <laughs> and going yeah. postal. I love it. <laughs> going postal in the postal service. I love it. Yeah. No, I, I, um, I definitely want to read it and check it out. Yeah. Well, you know, you're in luck because we have a preview copy. Oh, do we? We do. So you can actually read issue one uh, and 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 see what you think about it because they did send us over a copy to read. Nice. Nice. I'll be reading that tonight. For those out there who make comic books, the best way to get us to talk about your book is to send us a free copy because we love that. We love reading books. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Not the best way, I guess, but we it definitely it definitely makes us feel happy. <laughs> it's one way. <laughs> I mean, there was a point where we had such a backlog of comics to read. Oh, we still do. Yeah, so many. Since it, it can get insane. But it it's a way to get your name on the map, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's a show as far as uh, Space Bashers goes. We've got more stuff yep. to say, though. Quick and easy and ready to go. I like that. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, hopefully you guys loved hearing Eric and Joe and all about the Space Bastards and Jeff's effervescent way of just having a conversation. It's gotten to Jeff's, like, interview prowess has gotten better and better and better yeah for sure you know 
it's like night and day from what he was a year and two months ago. Yeah, which it's, is awesome. It's incredible. It's incredible what he's gotten from there to now. It's awesome. So if you guys want to hear more from people like Joe Aubrey and Eric Peterson, you should really head over to spoilerverse.com. It's an amazing place because at spoilerverse.com, there is a ton of back issues with people just like Joe and, and Eric. Not just like, because everybody's different. Everybody's their own individual person. But a lot of people that love the art of comics, comic books, and not only will you find people that love comics, but you'll find people who love TV and movies and actors and editors and directors. and They're all there. They're all waiting for you to hear their story. And I really implore you to go to spoilerverse.com and check that out. And while you're there, check out all of our reviews and previews and articles we have up there, all the fun stuff. And for those out there who've been wondering, hey, where's the, the, the articles from Jay Roach and Roach's Den? We've been missing those for a long time. Well, you can blame me. Jay sent over several to us that I just somehow didn't see. And now they're going through the process of being edited and put up. So there'll be a lot more Jay Roach coming out soon because I dropped the ball and didn't realize he was still sending them in. And I thought he was just done, but he's not. So we've got lots of cool stuff from him coming very soon. And on the website, we have a uh, store link. Go buy a t-shirt, a face mask, or a hoodie or something. Look fly as hell. Help support the site a little bit. And also, you can go to scpod.us slash discord. Join our public discord server and uh, come chat with us about all the fun stuff we're doing. Couldn't say it better myself there, Johnny boy. Good. I'm glad because I said it. <laughs> Good. Exactly. <laughs> All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that. We'll see you soon. But don't forget, in the oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. Cthulhu compels you to do. Open the mind. And read more. Just a little.